I want to begin this morning by mentioning the fact that there is a great crisis, in my opinion, that plagues American churches, that plagues American Christians, and that would be this notion that pastors are your life coaches, that churches are to function as your life coach, so to speak, where you can learn how to get your kids to turn out right as long as you follow all of these timeless truths and principles, and as long as you do what we say, your kids will turn out just the way you want them to, you'll have a perfect marriage, you'll always be happy, and uh, the church has been kind of selling itself this way. Uh, false marketing, I think. And so maybe it's no no wonder that some folks show up at the church and expect this, and they think that's what the pastor is going to offer them. I just want you to know I'm not a very good life coach. I'm not a very good life coach because I'm not a life coach. <laughs> I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian pastor. This is a Christian church. And so our goal, my ultimate aim would be to prepare you for eternity so that you might be ready to breathe your last breath and enter into the ultimate promised land. And that means you need a mediator. That means that if you're going to face God, the judge, who knows everything about you that you've ever thought or done, you'd better have a perfect mediator. And the Bible teaches that if you trust in Christ, you have a perfect mediator. He's done everything perfectly on behalf of everyone who would ever trust in him. He said, I came to fulfill the law. I came to fulfill all righteousness. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. That is by the law and its requirements. And I will give you rest. In fact, the Bible goes on to say that there's ultimately only one mediator. Who is a legitimate mediator. The man, Christ Jesus. The God-man, Christ Jesus. And so that's what we stress here. It's what I will stress. I'm not going to meet all of your needs because I can't. You'll need to go elsewhere. And it's okay to do that. There are a lot of smart people in the world who are made in God's image. But here at Omaha Bible Church, we want to help you get ready for eternity by making sure you have a mediator. And then some other important things that are related to it that we'll talk about today. To get ready for eternity, I also need to make sure that you know how to sing. It's not as important as having a mediator, but it's actually related. You need to know how to sing. Now, I'm not going to give voice lessons today. I wouldn't be any good at that. I'm not a great musician. But you need, need to know how to sing in this sense. You need to know how to praise. You need to know how to praise God for having a perfect mediator because that's what you're going to do when you breathe your last breath if you're a Christian and you step into eternity and you enter into the ultimate promised land, the new Jerusalem. You're going to praise. I know you're going to praise. In fact, I think you should be working on it now so it's not a total shocker. Listen to what... Re you can actually turn, turn with me if you would to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15... We are going to work on our singing today, even if it's in silence. I mean, I might sing a little bit later on, but hopefully Mike Grimes won't be in the auditorium when I do it. In Revelation chapter 15, last book of the Bible, looking to the future, things that will happen one day. Revelation 15, how about verse 3? 
In Revelation 15.3, it says, And they sang the song of Moses. Last time I checked, that's in Exodus 15. But in Revelation 15, they sang the song of Moses. Christians sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. If you're a Christian, one day you're going to sing the song of Moses. So today we're going to study the song of Moses because you know what? You should be familiar with it. And so we're going to be in Exodus 15. We're looking forward. And in the meantime, we can sing the song of Moses because we're praising God for what he's done for us through the mediator Jesus. And we learn even about the mediator Jesus from the song of Moses, who too was a mediator. He just wasn't as good of a mediator as the ultimate mediator, Jesus. So if you'd find Exodus 15 now, hopefully you're getting closer to being ready. Now, I will mention as you're turning there, I have so much, so I'm having you turn back there so we can get things moving. In Revelation 15, they sing the song of Moses and they sing the song of the Lamb. Grammar experts tell us they're not two songs. They sing the song of Moses even the song of the Lamb would be a good way to translate it. They're put together. It's, in a sense, the same thing. Because here's why. The ultimate deliverer is not Moses, it's Christ. The ultimate redeemer is not the one who redeems with the parting of the Red Sea. The ultimate redeemer is the one, not who conquers the Egyptians, but conquers all enemies and has his people delivered. For those of you who are like the scholarly side of things, here I'll quote a scholar. The saints praise the Lamb's victory in Revelation 15 as the fulfillment, the type fulfillment of that to which the Red Sea victory pointed it's the enhanced victory. It's the better victory. And here we have it in Exodus 15. The lesser, but we need to understand the lesser one if we're going to understand the greater one. So I'm excited about this song, the song of Moses and studying it because it's going to get you all the more ready for eternity. To better understand Jesus, let's better understand Moses. Really is what we're talking about. Exodus 15. Well, I know you're there by now because it's easy to find second book of the Bible, but some of you are just joining us and we're studying the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is all about Exodus. Okay. And I realize that sounds funny, but it's simple. It's all about leaving. You, you follow the exits. It's about leaving and they've been enslaved, oppressed, mistreated the Israelites for 400 years in Egypt under Pharaoh. And God, who had promised a long time ago, even before then, to give them the promised land, is now executing his salvation, his deliverance, so that the people of God could exit oppression and gain salvation, if you will, even though it's physical here. That's what Exodus is all about. It's all about exiting. It's all about God saving, delivering. Now, it's not ultimate salvation because that's going to come through the ultimate Moses, ultimate mediator, if you will, but it's designed to help us to understand how it works. It's wonderful. It makes me excited. One scholar put it this way. The fact is that the Red Sea crossing was, for the Hebrew, the most important physical redemption in the history of the Old Testament. 
If that's true, and I think it is, that will help us to understand not physical redemption, but it'll help us to understand spiritual redemption, getting your soul ready to respond the right way. It's the first recorded psalm or hymn for the Hebrew nation. I don't have an outline. I actually do have an outline, but it wouldn't really be helpful. There are three stanzas. I might not even mention them as we go. Then there's a conclusion or an epilogue, and then there's a responsive refrain. But you don't need to know any of that to do the Song of Moses. Psalm 78 says similar things. Psalm 136 says similar things. If you're wondering, what does this have to do with my life? It has to do with helping you understand if you have a perfect mediator, it would be right to do one thing, and that would be to praise the perfect mediator. These folks don't have a perfect mediator in Moses, but they know he represents God, and so they praise God, not Moses. Okay, ready? Did I say I'm enthusiastic about this? (laughs) This is great stuff. Oh, okay. Exodus 15 verse one says, then, then in response to the Exodus, in response to physical redemption, in response to God parting the Red Sea, having the Israelites go through on dry ground and then wiping out their enemies who wanted to kill them. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. That captures the whole idea right there. That's the right response to having redemption, even albeit physical here. And then it goes on to say in the opening verse, verse one, the horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea, praising God, the unique God, the Lord, the living God, Yahweh, who's different from all the other gods. And we're praising him because he delivered us. But part of being delivered means conquering our enemies. And the imagery that he uses here, God did this. God did this amazingly. Notice it says, the horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea. He's cast him into the sea like it's like it's no big deal at all because it isn't for God. He's that kind of deliverer. He's that kind of redeemer. And notice it says, he has, not we have. We learn a lot. He has done this. In chapter 14, my favorite verse, and some of you told me it was your favoritist too, <laughs> was 14.14. That helps us know that he has done this. Exodus 14.14, the Lord will fight for you. And, And just in case you're slow, like I am sometimes, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be what? Silent. We We don't even so much as open our mouths to be delivered in that case. There, they didn't. And so when the praise comes, it's not praise for what we've done. It's praise for what he has done because he said, you don't so much as open your mouth and utter a a syllable. But isn't it interesting that once that has happened and God has delivered us and we didn't even have to open our mouths, not to mention lift a finger, it's time to open your mouth. It's time to open your mouth, all right, not to gain deliverance, but because he's gained it for you, you open your mouth and you do what? You sing, you praise, you say, blessed be the God Father, right? You, 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 you say, he's done this. He's the champion. He's the savior. Don't even open your mouth to be saved. How about in this case? But then you do God and God alone be the glory. That's, that's the praise response. I love it. We're victorious in him. It is why we can then say, even though it kind of bugs me when we say it, we won, right? Like when people's favorite sports teams win, who's going to win the NBA game this afternoon? Sixers? 
Celtics. All right, might might divide my family. But if the Sixers win, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> we say we we lost or we won, and you're like you're not even on the team. What's wrong with you? But it's my team, right? I claim them. Well, if you're, I'm I'm fast forwarding to the, to the New Testament now. I can't help myself. I'm a Christian. If you're united to Christ by faith, you actually can say, as long as you understand what you're saying, we won. Because he represents you. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, I will, ever so quickly, 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says, Thanks be to God who in Christ, right, united to Christ by faith, always leads us in triumphal procession. That's victory after the battle talk. It's similar kind of talk from Exodus. If you're in Christ, all of your enemies ultimately will be defeated and you can say, He leads us in the victory. It's our victory because it's in Christ that it happens. He acts on our behalf according to his sovereign grace. Well, we better keep moving. Are we not even at verse 2 yet? Man, it's going to be a long Mother's Day. Verse 2 says, The Lord is my strength, right? And my song. And He has become my salvation. This is my God. And I will praise Him, my Father's God. And I will exalt Him. Notice the overlap, the repetition. It heightens, it emphasizes our understanding. It's it's for stress on purpose. It, it's poetic that way on purpose. He's He's my God. And if we were to go back in Exodus and back in Genesis, he's my God, not because I chose him, but because he covenanted, he swore via oath. He, he, he committed himself to us. All what he's done, but now we can say, because of what he's done, we say, he's, he's my God. He's, he's my God. And so we have this song. It's, he's my song. What a poetic way to say it. You grammarians argue about this. My song there, as translated in the ESV that I'm preaching from, the English Standard Version, uh, could be translated, he's not my song, but he's my defense. He's my protection. And the debate goes back and forth. And some say, maybe it's a cop-out. I don't know. I kind of like it. Maybe there's the essence of both. Because he's my protection, and that would fit the context. He's my song. I sing about him because he's my, he's my defender. He's my protector. My salvation... Why? Because he's my God. He's strong in battle. This is not self-congratulations. This is praise. He's my father's God. That's kind of interesting. Why do you think it would say he's my father's God? Probably for numerous reasons, but he's not my God in the sense that I carved him. And I got creative and I learned from others how they come up with their gods. And so I molded and shaped something out of metal or out of stone or clay or wood like where everybody else tends to get their gods, or lots of people do. He's not my God in that sense. As a matter of fact, he's my father's God. Because he's beyond me and my making, like so many idols, he's the same God who belonged to my father. And in context, in light of Genesis, and he was my father's father's God, and my father's father's father, you get the idea? Go back to Genesis chapter 12, and the Abrahamic covenant, and God's swearing. He's the God of everyone and anyone who would ever trust in him. That's whose God he is. The promises made to you and to your children. 
in the, and in the greater context, the way that's used in the book of Acts, for anybody and everybody who would ever believe he's their God, Jew and Gentile. It's also probably important that he's, he's my father's God if he, if he reaches back to the father, so to speak, because they've been in bondage for 400 years. And it's looked a lot like he's not going to keep his word. And now he's keeping his word and you say, you know what? This is what I was told about by my parents. That he would do this and now he's done it. It wasn't on our time frame. But this is that God that we learned about from Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. How about notice before we go to verse 3. This might turn into a series. uh, (laughs) I will exalt him. I will exalt him. Now, just to be nitpicky for a second, because I want you to think theologically, because we're thinking about God. I will exalt him. Is it possible for you to exalt God? It's it's kind of a trick question, because the scripture says that he does. So I think I'd probably want to say, well, yes. But if we're going to speak properly at first, at least on first glance, and we're going to talk about the doctrine of God, the teaching regarding God from the Bible, Christian theology, we call it theology proper. Is it possible to exalt God? No, it's not possible to exalt God, right? He, he, he's transcendent. He's beyond us. I mean, you're not going to carve the little carving and put it on a higher shelf because he's better than the other gods that you've made. You can't exalt God. It's impossible. He's the sovereign. He's the king. He's the creator. He, he couldn't be any higher. He couldn't be any greater. It's impossible to exalt God. I won't take the time, but I have a lengthy quotation here from a Christian, a Christian theologian that would help you to understand this. I'll just think that you can understand it based upon what I've said. So what does he mean? The God who is high and lifted up already, how could you exalt him and make him high and lifted up? Well, you could with your song. You could with your praise. You could because it would reflect how you see him. You could because it reflects your your heart of thanksgiving and praise. You know what? I like a lot of things in life. I like a lot of relationships in my life. I've enjoyed a lot of things before. But you know what? The best of the best of the best of the best in all of my experience and all of my life is the fact that I have redemption from this God. And so you highly exalt him with your voice and with your life and with your thinking and with your heart. And that's what's happening, no doubt, in this song. I almost called it a psalm. And if I already have and do in the future, it's for good reason because psalms are songs. So if I say the psalmist, give me a little bit of, a little bit of room. Um, I'm getting older. Can't keep it all straight. <laughs> okay, verse three. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Let's start with the last part of verse 3, uh, the second statement. The Lord is his name. Against the backdrop of the this God has this name, and that God has that name, and that God has that name, and this one is known as the God of fire, and this is known as the God of water, and this is known as the God of... You know what our God's name is? God. <laughs> 
Our God's name is Lord. Our God's name is Yahweh, the self-existent, doesn't need anyone, anything. Uh, remember we learned in the book of Exodus when, when they wanted to know his name, he just says, I am. Which is a great way to answer the question. If you're the one and only true God who's unlike all of the other ones. It's a terrible way to ask the question if you're one of many options. It's nonsensical. The Lord is his name. That's the God who delivered us. Different than the gods of the Egyptians where they had their chariots and they had their their warriors and they have all their wealth and power and wisdom and might. And God just wiped them out. Our God's name is God. Our God's name is Yahweh. It's great. It's awesome to see. If this is true, you should praise him. But he does say the Lord is a man of war. A man of war. What does that mean? Other than the obvious. So if I said, I'm not a man of words, you'd say you're a preacher. I think you actually are. But just for the sake of effect. Well, I don't like to talk. We've heard people say things like that before. Not a man of many words, not a person, a woman of many words, but I'm not, I'm not a man of words. But if it, if it was, he's a man of words, well, he's, he's, he's a talker. He's known for that. He's, he's, he's good at that. The Lord is a man of war. He's good at war. He's good at battle. That's who he is. He's an eminent warrior, conqueror. He's not vulnerable. He's not a pacifist. Now, I suspect that some of you are uncomfortable when you hear things like what we just read. He's a man of war. He's good at war. He's good at fighting. And some of you are thinking, I don't know if I like that. And I'm sympathetic to you if you're saying, I, I don't know if I like a God who's like that. One reason you might be uncomfortable by hearing that is because maybe you've never been kidnapped. Maybe you've never been enslaved. Maybe you've never been captured against your will and therefore and then mistreated and then having people like the Israelites wanting to murder them and fully intent on murdering them. That might be one of the reasons why it makes you think, that, that, I, don't, I don't really like that. And you, and you sit here and you sit in judgment of God for being a man of war. See, it's easy when it's just this theoretical, because I've never experienced it kind of thing before. But if we could interview people who've been kidnapped and been saved, people who've been in war, and people wanting to execute them, murder them, and they've been set free and delivered, they're probably not so um, squirmish about all of this stuff as we are, or judgmental as we are. They think, this is actually a good thing. I was just a little kid when my great-uncle Albert, who drove for Patton in World War II when he died, man, I wish I could talk to him and hear some stories. And I'm sure my great-uncle Albert would say, Pat, you're so soft. <laughs> and I don't even think I'm soft. <laughs> I'm sure he would think I was a total softy. 
But I don't think he would be as wrongly rubbed by this as I am. Or maybe you are. A real enemy doing horrific things. Needing to be stopped. And that's just by way of analogy. Because you know what? We have, we have mixed motives. Every country has mixed motives. Every leader has mixed motives. Every army, military. But God doesn't. And he is a man of war. And I'll tell you this. You want a God who is a man of war to defeat your enemies and set you free and bring you redemption and salvation and freedom to the point where you'll praise him. Surely, surely. Verse 4 says, Pharaoh's chariots and his host and his many, many warriors is the, the word for host. Pharaoh's chariots, chariots, Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts. He casts, it's a word for shooting an arrow, right? It's, it's powerful like that, punchy like that. He casts into the sea. He shoots them into the sea and his chosen officers, his elites. These aren't the, these aren't the, the, the weaklings or the new guys, the expendables. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a, like a stone. It's not even a contest. Certainly not a draw. Verse 6, your right hand, O God, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The the God who doesn't have hands or arms. Read John chapter 4. He's a spirit. This is not the incarnate Christ. He's not been incarnate yet. This is talking about God who doesn't have arms. He doesn't have hands. But the text says he does because it's using language that we would understand. The God who has no hands or arms has more powerful hands or arms than anyone else. You go, wow, praise him. He's the strongest of all the strong, symbolizing his power, his preeminence, his strength. It's not even close. He shatters the enemy, not like fine glassware, but by poorly made idols. And he sets his people free. That's the first stanza. Let's do the next one. Verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. How ironic. The Israelites were making bricks using stubble in Egypt. Chapter 5, verse 12. And you know what? God wipes out the enemies of his people who are his enemies like they're stubble, like little pieces of, of straw, the little tiny pieces that will just burn up like that. That's how God is victorious. Verse 8, at the blast, like wind of your nostrils, when God exhales, the waters piled up, the floods stood in a heap. It's like a pile of grain. How about the next part there in verse 8? The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The, the verbiage that was used back when it happened in the historic account is, is he, they're like walls, like the architect, uh, architectural terminology, like walls around a city. God did that to the water. How do you do that? You can't do that unless it's a miracle, unless it's supernatural. They congealed. He, he made the ocean into jello before there was jello. Verse nine, the enemy said, 
How about this? And it's going to emphasize the, the hurried rhetoric on purpose to see the, the passion. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. Verse 10, you blew with your wind. Notice sovereign control over creation. It's his wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord? Among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? What great questions. And the answer is no one, no one, no one, no one, and on and on it goes. He's totally different. He's the great I am. We can say he's like no other, which is what holy means. And yet we end up having to say, he's like no other, but you know what? But it's because we're trying to explain what he's done. He's kind of, sort of like these other things like wind like a great warrior the king a father fantastic prey this is so great I hope this is infectious now I do want you to recall please notice if we read verse 11 which is so awesome and we sang the song today based upon that earlier right But I want you to notice when we sing, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders, going to keep my day job. You see how it goes, right? We, we like that song. It's good. I love it. I love it that we sing it. But, but since I kind of knew what the sermon was going to be about today, I had to lean over to my wife and say, and that praise is because God has judged and stopped our enemies. Because he's a great man of war, we sing those songs. That's that's it. So, I have a proposal. In context, we're going to add some lyrics. So next Sunday, I'm sure Pastor Mike Grimes will be all for this. Who is like you, sending out fury, consuming like stubble, drowning like rocks? It wouldn't go very well. I wouldn't like it either. But I do want you to think in those terms when we sing the song. God doesn't save us from nothing. There are real enemies who want your soul forever with eternal consequences. And God defeats them. You need a God who is a man of war. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Stanza three, let's keep going. You stretched out your right hand. I won't sing anymore, I promise. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Poetic, even the way it's worded, and I'm not a Hebrew expert. I had to pay a lot of money to study Hebrew for a couple of years, but I have to rely on tools more than other things. Poetically worded where he swallows them up one after another, after another, after another, so you get the idea. Okay, verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love, that's his covenantal love, his loyal love, his steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. He set them free, and so he leads them. It goes back to redemption through the Passover that we learned about earlier in Exodus. Okay, so he's redeemed them, and he leads them. You have guided them by your strength. We need a strong deliverer to your holy abode. Ultimately, that's going to be in the promised land. Ultimately, that's going to be Mount Zion. He's going to lead them there, anticipating that to come still. How about if we keep going? It says in verse 14, the peoples have heard. 
Not the Israelite peoples, but the foreign countries, the, uh, the opponents. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. They're going to pass by there on their way. Now the chiefs of Edom, they're going to pass by there on their, on their way. Dismayed, trembling, seizes the leaders of Moab. They're going to pass by there as well. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. They're going to pass by Canaan as well on the way to the promised land, leaving Egypt. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. We would say they're as dumb as a rock. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased or redeemed or set free. Until they're secure, they're going to get to the promised land. And I want you to know, as we anticipate this is not only the song of Moses, it's also ultimately looking forward to the song of the Lamb. You will get to the promised land. You will get to the promised land and all of your ultimate spiritual enemies are going to be like dumb rocks trying to stop you. Read Romans chapter 8. I won't do it right now. But nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. His work is done. He's been raised from the dead. So nothing can stop that from happening. That's the Song of the Lamb part of it, Romans 8. Anticipated here in the Song of Moses part of it in Exodus 15. Connecting the dots. Now for the epilogue and then a quick refrain. It says in verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. Ah, think Jerusalem, think Mount Zion. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the unique dwelling where the temple will be. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Notice it's in the past tense, even though it's a future event. It's doing it on purpose like the prophets speak because it's sure to happen because of God's covenantal oath. Verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And on Mount Zion in Jerusalem... There will be a great place. Unique things will happen. But it doesn't last forever and ever. Because it's looking forward to a greater Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that comes from above, Galatians says. The new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem that the book of Revelation talks about. Ultimately, it's going to find fulfillment there. Then there's this refrain that happens. And then we wrap it up. Verse 19. And when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen. Think horses. Warfare. Strong. And if if you're the, 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 the Israelites who don't have horses, can we say you might be at a disadvantage? Yeah, you've been enslaved for 400 years. You haven't been training for war with all the weapons of war and with horses. You're outmatched times a bazillion. When the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground. In the midst of the sea, verse 20, then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them. The them is in the masculine. So she she sang not just to the other women. She sang to the men, to Moses and the rest also. Sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Sing for freedom. Sing for deliverance. Sing for salvation. Praise him. In conclusion, (laughs) I did just a little bit of research 
And according to one historian, the greatest battle ever in human history. This author says, I won't name him because I think he's dead wrong, (laughs) was the battle at Yorktown. Went on and on explaining. In all of human history, sounded like it was written by an American, by the way. In all of human history, the battle at Yorktown gave all of his reasons. And I quote, the most influential battle in history, end quote. Now, I'm not a historian. I don't play one on television. (laughs) I'm not even going to try. But that's not the greatest battle. What is the greatest battle? Well, I think the second greatest battle, the greatest battle recorded in the Bible, the second greatest battle would be the battle in Exodus. But that's not the greatest battle. Oh, and let me say, the greatest enemy of all time is not England. (laughs) The greatest battle of all time is going to be against the greatest enemy of all time. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we learned that the greatest enemy, it's worded this way, the last enemy, but as in the last enemy, as in the greatest enemy, as in your worst enemy, is death. It's death. And the Bible promises in the resurrection text, 1 Corinthians 15, that the last enemy is most certainly and absolutely as good as defeated because the Lord Jesus Christ died a sinner's death. The wages of sin is death, so he paid the penalty. But then he also was raised victoriously on behalf of everyone who would ever trust in him. It's why he says, if you believe in me, though you die, you will live. You will live. This text, Exodus 15, is designed to help us learn how to respond to physical redemption so that we can then understand that the greatest enemy is not Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The greatest enemy is death. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate mediator, conquered sin and death. And it's why you need to trust in Him. Have a mediator, the right kind, and then respond the right way. So how about wrapping it up? When it comes to having a mediator... You need to say to Pat Abendroth, I'll just use myself so as to not offend you any further if I have. Pat, shut your mouth. Chapter 14, verse 14. Rest in Christ. But then secondly, Pat, open your mouth and praise God for this great deliverance. If you can have that figured out, you can face tomorrow. And you can face all of the other things you have going on in your life that are real hardships. Because there is an end and we already know how it ends. So we can praise God through all of the other complicated things we're trying to take care of. Should we pray? Okay. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men and women and, and boys and girls and their children. Thank you for this unique opportunity when we're living in human history. Help us to take it seriously. Help, it, help us to be motivated to live for the glory of Christ, our great Savior. Thank you for the way you've worked in history, even, even through the Exodus, so that we might learn from it.
Encourage us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.